0: Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. If you've been listening to this program since I began in May, you'll surely have noticed a disciplinary trend in the works I discuss. They are, for the most part, historical in nature, reflecting uh, the bias of your host, who is, in fact, an aspiring historian. Well, today I'm finally breaking my routine, as I'll be joined by Dr. Erica Pressing, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Community and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa. We'll be talking about her new book, White Man's Water, The Politics of Sobriety in a Native American Community, just out from the University of Arizona Press. Dr. Pressing spent several years living on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Montana, involved in community health initiatives and conducting interviews about the disruptive role alcohol and alcoholism has played in the lives of many northern Cheyenne. These testimonials serve as the basis for Dr. Prussing's sensitive and thought-provoking work, exploring the cultural shaping of personal narratives, the politics of how these perspectives interact in local social life, and to the consequences that these processes have for individuals seeking sobriety. In turn, she demonstrates the diverse ways in which Northern Cheyenne community members experience alcohol-related problems and conceptualize the transformation from drinking to sobriety. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Pressing, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm so glad you could be here.
1: I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Andrew.
0: Of course. Well, today we're discussing your new book, White Man's Water, The Politics of Sobriety in a Native American Community. It's just out from the University of Arizona Press and the First Peoples Publishing Consortium. I'm particularly glad to be discussing this work today as it uh, it's really my first foray for this podcast series into uh, contemporary issues, into cultural anthropology. Um, but what's even more exciting is that this work uh, doesn't just assume the distant pose of a scholarly observer, it's also deeply embedded in and accountable to the Northern Cheyenne community that is its focus. So uh, there's much to discuss here, uh, and I'm looking forward to doing so, but I want to start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book.
1: Oh, okay, great. Well, so I'm on the faculty at the University of Iowa in both anthropology and public health. So I first came to the Northern Cheyenne community. Um, through sort of a collaborative effort, I had been interested in looking at uh, research about women and alcohol, and was finding there really wasn 't much out there in uh the sort of health literature um, about Native American women. so I went looking for a place that would be interested in having me do this kind of work that they could directly use it in their own you know health programming and so on and uh, Northern Cheyenne was uh, that community. <laughs> So I've been connected with them since 1992 as my first sort of contact and visit and so forth. I lived there from 94 to 97. Um, as a result of my experiences there, I finished my Ph.D. in anthropology and then also got a master's in public health. So I have a very uh, detailed sort of interest in producing knowledge that can be actually applied by people who are interested uh, working uh, in Native communities on particular health programs. So that's a bit where I'm coming from in sort of writing the book, I guess.
0: Where does the title of your work come from? White Man's Water. It's a very pro- provocative title.
1: <laughs> it took me a long time to figure out what to call the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I realized that the answer was sitting right in front of me that white man's water is the translation of a prominent Cheyenne term for alcohol. Uh, which is Veja map, and literally it means, uh, you know, whiskey refers to whiskey, um, and there's other words for wine and beer and so on. Uh, but I thought it was, it's one of the first terms for alcohol that the community developed, and it just sort of speaks volumes, right, about, uh, you know, colonialism, uh, race, and, you know, uh, the introduction of alcohol under those conditions to the community, so... As soon as I sort of remembered that I knew that, I was like, aha, there's the title.
0: <laughs> Before we delve into some of those themes uh, you just raised, actually, I want to ask you a bit about um, the changing relationship in, in a seemingly a very positive way between um, cultural anthropology or ethnography and indigenous peoples in North America and how it's changed over the past decades. And, you know, as a graduate student in Native American studies, one of the first essays or books I had to read, Uh, was Vine Deloria Jr., and you point him out, you you cite him as well, the Anthropologists (laughs) and Other Friends, which linked the history of anthropology to colonialism, but it also called for a greater accountability to Native communities. And I'm hoping you can talk a bit about um, those tensions, your strategies in addressing them, how how anthropology has changed.
1: Yeah, well, I would say, like any change, right, it's sort of incremental and sketchy and uh, unpredictable, Um, in terms of it's not sort of necessarily widespread across the whole academy, right? There are generational differences in how people conceptualize what it means to do ethnography. And I think for people of my era, you know, who went to graduate school in the 1990s, at that point there were a number of key works uh, drawing on postmodern uh, theories and so forth, kind of working to... um, uh, listen closely to critiques that have been raised by uh, subaltern peoples, right? People who are uh, not in positions of power in the production of academic knowledge and yet who are subjects of that production process. And um, so I think that Vine Deloria has a very, you know, public, very widely circulated statement for native North American studies, but these same claims have been made in a whole variety of other arenas as well. And, uh, As a graduate student in the 1990s, I would say uh, most of the faculty members I was working with were not necessarily on board (laughs) with these critiques. And they were kind of like, oh, you know, do you really want to work in Native North America? People won't talk to you. There's all these politics, you know. Um, Because it used to be a rite of passage for American ethnographers to get their first experience uh, as a graduate student, usually uh, working with the Native North American community. And uh, by the 1960s, that was, you know, gone. Um, so it's now considered kind of a difficult place to work, but to me, I guess I always saw it as these are valid critiques. Obviously, researchers should be producing knowledge that can be used by communities. Um, and uh, this is the wave of ethnography everywhere in the globe, that you need to be accountable to communities uh, that you're working with. Um, so I didn't see it as you know something to avoid, but something to embrace. This is the direction the discipline is going. Um, And the, you know, intervening decades since that essay came out in the late 1960s have witnessed a lot of changes in anthropology. But, you know, you still find a lot of um, what I would argue more, you know, colonial mentalities that, you know, it's your intellectual freedom or your academic right somehow to go and produce knowledge for its own sake and for your career's sake rather than being accountable to communities. So I'd say progress is happening in anthropology and sort of fits and starts on that uh, on that count. (laughs)
0: So I was hoping you can also just um, introduce our listeners to uh, the community you worked in, Um, Mm -hmm. tell us a bit about where it is and and a bit about its history, Um, and then I hope to also ask you a bit about your your methodology, how you went about uh, integrating yourself in the community and negotiated the uh, insider-outsider positions there.
1: Right, sure, sure. Well, the community is located in what's now um, southeastern Montana, state of Montana, And it has an interesting history as a reservation community. Originally, the Northern Cheyennes had been intended to live with the Southern Cheyennes. The two groups had kind of uh, split off from one another by about the 1840s, um, given all the sort of events going on on the plains, uh, just spending some groups spending more time in the north, some more in the south. And uh, the Southern Cheyennes had been um, sent to live on um, a reservation in what later became Oklahoma, right? Indian territory. And the Northern Cheyenne's were sent down there as well. And they hated it. They hated the climate. Uh, they just didn't want to be there at all. They tried to negotiate to leave and, um, weren't successful with the powers that be. So they just basically decided to make a run for it. And they went up the Northern uh, North through the plains, uh, and, uh, found refuge at Fort Keogh in, um, what's now a state of Montana, Miles City area, and through negotiations with uh, Cheyenne leaders who had uh, joined with the military um, in the years following um, the sort of end of uh, Cheyenne freedom on the Plains, um, and also help from uh, some allies in the military, uh, non-Native allies. They were able to get uh, what was known originally as the Tongue River Reservation, which is named for the river that flows along its eastern border. So it's a small community um, there's about 4,500-5,000 5, residents, um, and uh, there are five different districts, um, three sort of major towns, um, and uh, it's located in the sort of high plains. There's timber and so forth resources. Uh, there's rangeland, um, but it's not a good uh, climate for things like small-scale farming and so on, which were the original economic, you know, enterprises that. Um, the federal government wanted to impose in the early uh, reservation years. So it's been uh, economics are a difficult issue uh, on this reservation as for many others. Um, It's somewhat more remotely located than the neighboring Crow Reservation, for example, which has an interstate that goes right uh, by it or through part of the northern end. Um, So that kind of shapes uh, the opportunities and uh, access that non-natives have to this um, community.
0: Now, um, how does how does alcohol factor into this? I mean, you talk about um, long term processes of colonization and, and survival, and, and lay them out. And I'm wondering how how alcohol plays into these processes that you you lay out for your readers.
1: Yeah, I would say that um, to me, alcohol sort of serves as an illustration, right, of these much larger historical processes unfolding and the sort of cultural ideas and debates and political debates that the community has engaged in um, surrounding how to respond to colonization, which is an ongoing question and an ongoing process, I think, in uh, many contemporary Native communities, uh, Northern Cheyenne among them. So to me, alcohol sort of serves as this particular um, site for looking at those processes. Um, again, its introduction as part of colonization, right, uh, sort of makes it, uh, figure in that in a particular way. Also, the intensity of uh, the problems associated with it, it's, it's on people's radar as, you know, um, a difficult health issue um, and, you know, one that is subjected to a variety of interpretations by different people, uh, interpretations that can change over the course of generations, that can also change in a person's life, right? Uh, alcohol is something they may engage in in the youthful eras of their life and then no longer later. So it's just, to me, was a really fascinating um, location to sort of look at these complex and um, diverse uh, uh, cultural processes that are going on in the community, which uh, was immediately sort of striking to me. You know, you kind of come out with a a stereotyped idea, I guess, um, of what it means to study culture, and I I had some background in more contemporary social theories when I started field work, but I think was still kind of, you know, I'm going to be able to come up with some laundry list of, you know, features that define northern Cheyenne culture, and pretty quickly it became apparent that alcohol is highly debated and contested, and there's multiple perspectives about it, and that sort of opened me up to, you know, more contemporary sorts of thinking about how do we understand what it means to be a member of a cultural community um, in the current day and age. And I think part of the appeal, too, was um, noticing immediately that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous had a very prominent role to play in this community. And that's also a nice way to look at the way in which much broader, kind of globalized, even processes, right, uh, end up playing out in localized cultural contexts because clearly this whole mode of, you know, therapeutic intervention into alcohol was not developed in Native North America at all um, and has been adapted in some ways, um, uh, but in other ways, it really helped me to sort of see and tell the story, I hope, of uh, the pressures that are brought to bear on tribally run and tribally managed um, health care systems, um, uh, that there's a tendency to sort of have this default reliance on non-Native uh, therapies and um, sort of how those politics work in um, this topic of alcohol really enabled me to tap into that because of um, the prominence of uh, 12-step approaches.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about um, the 12-step program. As you said, it's um, well. I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about its history, uh, how it how it comes to be the dominant paradigm uh, in the Northern Cheyenne community, and as well as some of the um, tensions around its its use.
1: Yeah. Well, the history of it, I mean, it was founded in the 1930s uh, in, by sort of middle-class, you know, white uh, male, um, two people, one a recovering alcoholic and uh, or alcoholic wanting to recover and one a physician. And so it became this sort of grassroots movement that accrued a lot of attention and a lot of members and ultimately through a process that's really actually fascinating to me but um, got very integrated through... um a variety of uh, networks and uh, research interests. Certain research centers emerged by the 1950s, for example, to look at alcohol use in the United States and were sort of uh, connected with um, AA and uh, its sort of uh, organizational infrastructure at a grassroots level. And so the emergence of research about alcohol and the activities of AA were very intertwined in the mid-20th century. and it became sort of this, you know, standard. At the same time, there were always complaints that, do we really have any evidence that it works or for who it works, right? And then uh, with the various civil rights movements of the 1960s, there was a whole move to diversify AA and sort of say, do we need special groups for women or for, you know, people of uh, gay and lesbian and transgender, right? These sorts of uh Gender, uh sexual identities, uh, racial and ethnic identities, um, other sorts of things. Uh, so that's a feature of the movement. And um, in addition to that, there's also been an expansion of its scope from just focusing on people who drink and want to stop drinking to people who are affected by that as spouses, as children, right? As members of family systems, that was a big trend in American psychotherapy by the 1970s you have all these kind of larger historical currents playing into uh, the evolution of the 12 steps. And at this point in time, I would say there's a lot of criticism uh, of these approaches and whether and how they work. Uh, And at the same time, it remains a very profound kind of uh, foundation for the way in which a lot of um, therapeutic interventions for substance abuse are formulated Um, And there are definitely alternatives where people want to do things like short-term therapies as opposed to lifelong attendance at meetings, which is kind of a cornerstone of 12-step approaches. Um, And people also want to focus on, you know, you can do individual therapy, kind of cognitive behavioral sorts of things where you alter how a person thinks about alcohol and their relationship to it and uh, behavioral sort of consequences uh, or changes follow from that so that you don't need necessarily the whole group mechanism, the group meeting. Uh, So there's a lot of, you know, um, discussion of alternatives and in some cases implementation. But I think when you sort of talk to people who work in the substance abuse field on the front lines, uh, many are still, they were raised, you know, and their chemical dependency, you know, training program that they went through focused on ideas that are um, grounded in the 12 steps. And, The basic concept is, you know, that you've come under the power of substances, um, that your life and psychological world is oriented around the use of a substance and that you need to relearn how to behave uh, socially, how to talk and think about yourself and how to deal with your feelings um, in a way that uh, enables you to um, operate, live, you know, feel motivated by a variety of other factors, not just the relationship to the substance. Um, So that's kind of AA's big contribution, I guess, to um, therapeutic interventions Mm -hmm. for alcohol.
0: One of the observations you make in the book is that that while the 12-step program is not universally embraced at Northern Cheyenne, you found that young women in particular found meaning in the program. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. why you think that is.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely a generational thing. You know, I think that... um, the open expression of emotion and so forth, that's often part of 12-step approaches. Uh, that's something community members themselves sort of pointed out. Well, women just express their feelings more, you know, and it wasn't just women. It was sort of younger generations of women who'd been more exposed to, you know, some of those modes of uh, uh, expression in um, the surrounding society through their education, through just their, you know, growing up experiences and so forth, their experiences in childhood, Um, kind of having more exposure to that than older generations had had. Um, But I think also uh, there's a political motivation there. This is a rhetorical tool uh, that can be used to make claims about, you know, um, what kind of a problem is alcohol, what should be done about it, you know, how does it relate to other kinds of problems in the community and so forth. So I think that its attractiveness is also um, not just familiarity, from childhood experiences and exposure to the non-native world or whatever, but also that um, this serves a political purpose. Um, And then along with that, I think the psychological appeal of it is also important to attend to. uh, That, again, because of familiarity or because, uh, you know, repeated stories that I would hear from younger women were, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And you hear this a lot in sort of 12-step discussions in general, people have this experience of sort of revelation, right, that I never knew what to call it, uh, or I never knew that other people had the same constellation of problems that I do. Um, and so it's putting a name to something that had been deeply troubling to a person that they hadn't really been um, able to think about in those terms. Um, so I think there's sort of layers of sort of cultural and historical and uh, political and sort of psychological uh, factors involved in why younger women um, tended to kind of be more open to this. Um, but at the same time, they're quite quite critical of its limitations, mm-hmm. too. So it's an interesting, you know, there's widespread criticism in the community. They're aware of those critiques and in some cases share a lot of them. But on the other hand, see something that is workable or appealing or whatever about this approach, too.
0: What are some of those critiques that that get raised?
1: Yeah, the big critiques are just if you look at the 12 steps of AA and the group meeting format and the emotional expression and the centering of a treatment program, right, this outpatient uh, recovery center program around 12-step approaches, there's just some major things that are pretty quickly visible. Um, it's a very culturally and historically specific thing to sit around in a group and talk about your experiences and express um, emotion about them. Uh, and that's just not, you know, emotion is certainly expressed in daily conversation and people talk about their experiences, but that format is culturally foreign uh, to this environment. Um, uh, and so that's one big thing. Um even basic things like the first step of AA is, you know, to recognize that you're powerless over alcohol and that this is always going to be a problem for you as a result and you should remind yourself constantly that you're an alcoholic. So that's the sort of scripted way that you introduce yourself in a 12 step group is Hi, I'm so-and-so, and and I'm an alcoholic, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in one prevalent sort of local theory of language, you're very careful about how you speak in the Cheyenne world because language is seen as having the power to constitute reality. So you don't say things carelessly, and when you say things, you focus on what you want to happen or help bring into being. So that is very much, you know, conflicts with constantly Mm -hmm. saying and reminding yourself that you're an alcoholic, Um, you know, and so I have a couple of quotes from people uh, sort of grappling with that, right? Like, why should I say I'm an alcoholic if I say that? That's what I'm going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's basic conflicts there, and then the whole sort of, you know, outpatient recovery center, the staff being there because of their credentials, you know, having gotten training in chemical dependency counseling, uh, mostly through the local tribal community college, but also elsewhere. Uh, the idea that somebody has the authority to tell you how to change your behavior because of their education is also doesn't fly that well in all sectors of the Northern Cheyenne community, where really you want to get advice from somebody who knows you, who you respect, who meets kind of local standards of, you know, uh, maturity and kind of well-being, which means having a household, right, supporting your family, interacting in a generous and, uh, you know, a constructive way with uh, members of your family group and with others in the community. So those standards are quite different. And so there would often be, you know, uh, discussion in, about the personal lives of the counselors, right, who are uh, working at Recovery Center and um, why should I listen to this person if they have XYZ going on in their lives kind of thing. So there's multiple layers to kind of the critiques of the 12 steps as a conceptual framework, as a set of practices, and then also how it's been institutionalized in the community. Mm-hmm.
0: On, that, on the generational difference that you raised uh, a few minutes ago, you write that um, in interviewing women at uh, Northern Cheyenne that most construct alcohol as a powerful source of disruption in their personal and community worlds, but um, older and younger women appeal to different rhetorical frameworks when, uh, when discussing strategies for sobriety In particular, older women um, describe becoming sober as a return to known values, while uh, you write that younger women portray sobriety as an extended process of psychological transformation. Uh, Can Mm -hmm. you talk about this tension a little bit and what what that means, return to known values versus uh, psychological transformation and how that plays out in in sobriety politics?
1: Right, right. Well, the way I see it is um, those were the kind of features of the – women's narratives. And again, the older versus younger is kind of an analytical, you know, uh, convenience, right? Not all women who are of older generations necessarily fit in that rhetorical, uh, the category of these rhetorical strategies that I'm going to describe. So people move in between them. And I have some examples of that in the book. But um, as a rule or as a pattern, older generations of women, um, tended to engage in a prominent local rhetorical convention where you gain esteem and authority by positioning yourself as closer to the past. And so women would tell stories about their early childhoods, the values that they had learned as a child, how that changed and was disrupted, sometimes very directly by alcohol as part of the story, and how their own involvements with alcohol then came to whatever point of frustrating them um, and uh, they had this desire to change, and what they, how they describe that process is that they needed to go back to what they had already learned in childhood. And literally, women, you know, did learn different things, right, growing up in a different era of reservation life before alcohol use became prevalent. Um, so there's definitely some accuracy, I guess, if you want to say that, some historical accuracy to the accounts that they are tell, uh, constructing here. But there's also a a rhetorical dimension in which people of older ages um, especially gain credibility uh, when they make claims that link their own practices or perspectives to um, the past. And this has been described in other Native communities um, as well. So for younger women, then, they are inhibited from that maneuver, that exact maneuver. They can't say, well, I learned this and that in my childhood, because they didn't grow up under those conditions and uh, everybody knows that, right? So they are kind of searching for some other kind of authoritative uh, rhetorical framework to help them um, construct credible claims about uh, what alcohol is Um, and this is where the whole sort of 12-step family systems idea really resonates, I think, with younger women because it provides an explanation for those who did grow up with parents who drank, which is, you know, a significant proportion of the women that I interviewed, they are able to talk about that very concretely and how alcohol interfered with the transmission of cultural values. And so they are essentially shut out of this very prominent, esteemed local rhetorical device Mm. uh, by that reality. Um, So they're looking for something else, and they're looking to mount a critique in some ways of their parents' generation's behavior as well, um, for most, they don't personalize it to their parents so much as consider it as a larger, you know, um, legacy of, uh, you know, uh, colonial disenfranchisement and so on, that their parents were suffering from that. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. that's kind of the uh, features of older, quote-unquote, sure. versus younger.
0: Sure. Um, stepping back a little bit uh, about the, the community at large, um, I remember one, one quote that stuck with me was that you write that living in the Northern Cheyenne reservation involves constant encounters with the vagaries of federal policy yeah. um, and that's something that i think you know non-native folks don't necessarily experience obviously when walking around yeah. having to constantly encounter the vagaries of of federal policy what do you mean by that how does that look on on the, in a community like Northern Cheyenne
1: yeah yeah it means that, you know, different policy eras can have really profound consequences in terms of people's employment, right? Are we in an era where there's federal funding available for uh, social and educational programs more so, uh, or is this an era in which that's been constrained? That has, you know, direct impacts on the uh, sort of proportion of the Northern Cheyenne population that is able to be employed at a particular point in time, because those are huge employers, right, uh, in the reservation context. Um, from a health perspective, if you want to implement, you know, a program that runs over years, like you want to prevent diabetes and implement an educational intervention in schools or whatever, right? Um, you're content, uh, dependent, oftentimes, on federal funding cycles that are much shorter than that. Um, so, and it's unpredictable from year to year, exactly how appropriations are going to happen. Um, you know, uh, there's lots of laws on the books saying that Congress is supposed to support, you know, X, Y, Z things with uh, X, Y, Z amounts of money. Um, but when push comes to shove, if you have a war going on or you have an economic downturn or whatever, right, those decisions are going to be made under very uh, specific historical conditions that change from month to month and year to year. So with such an impact of federal funding on everything, housing, you know, um, uh and uh health and education and these key sort of local features of local life you just really experience this in a very dramatic um fashion you know it it really matters the outcomes of elections and things like that you know whereas in the sort of mainstream society you know that's not you know people don't vote or whatever and they're just like well it doesn't matter so yeah
0: did you witness some of those those changes happening even in your time your years living there
1: yeah I was there you know through the mid nineteen nineties and um have continued to maintain ties there so i um, sometimes get uh, everything blurred together sure. in terms of presidential administrations and so forth you know um but kind of uh yeah that was definitely something that people talked about, and I knew people who lost jobs because uh educational programs were cut you know that had been in existence for the preceding uh administration for four years or more. And then times change, and so people are kind of very entrepreneurial, right? And trying mm-hmm. to figure out is there something else that's up and coming that they can either uh, hook up with, or can they apply for something, right, a uh, grant or something, in order to keep um, keep going? Um, so yeah, it's a very uh, very literal, very tangible sort of feature of local life.
0: Sure. Um, on a slightly different track, uh, you write a bit about um, popular representations, stereotypes, or uh long-standing colonial narratives um from the non-native world um and I'm wondering how those shape issues like alcoholism and treatment um you know the contending with some of the very deeply embedded uh colonial stereotypes or narratives that surround issues of alcoholism
1: yeah yeah I think the major ones, you know, are familiar to everybody just the sort of taken for grantedness. You know, so many times I'll say, oh, I study alcohol use among Native North Americans and people start nodding like, oh, yeah, you know, they know that's a big health problem and they know that it probably has a genetic component. Those are the two sort of features of knowledge that are really uh, have widespread sort of, you know, popularity. And, of course, when you look closely, um, rates of drinking, styles of drinking and so forth vary dramatically between and within Native communities. You know, all well-designed research sort of shows that very consistently. Um, So... A lot of our data about drinking doesn't come from well-designed research studies. It comes from sort of like emergency room visit records right, or arrest records or something, and those are very selective, and a few individuals with serious problems can grossly inflate those numbers, which then get attributed to the entire community, uh, either locally like a tribal community or to native peoples in general. So there's this sort of ongoing tendency to overstate and kind of dramatize the extent of uh, alcohol problems in Native communities or assume that the most severe forms, you know, plague everyone as opposed to being, you know, localized in uh, times and places. Um, The genetic component also has huge, you know, um, cachet, I guess, circulates very widely. And uh, lots of carefully designed research has shown very mixed findings about this. Um, You know, uh, Native North Americans um, did not have uh, alcohol as a substance in their, you know, world, uh, except for some groups in the southwestern U.S. um, who made uh, um, uh, drinks, uh, alcohol out of fermentation, but distilled alcohol, the strong forms that were brought in by the Europeans, uh, definitely arrived and uh, with Europeans. And so there does seem to be room for uh, a discussion of the sort of physiological dimensions, right, of uh, alcohol-related problems among Native peoples. But there's really interesting works by um, anthropologists like uh, Gilbert Quintero, And also historians like uh, physician historian David Jones, who've looked at just the logics, right? Uh, What political tasks are accomplished by focusing on the genetic components of this problem? Um, You know, looking at biological explanations in a reductionistic way like that, as if genes just, you know, account for the whole problem, um, just has a sort of a... uh, does the work of excusing more complicated thinking about the social and political, you know, uh, dimensions of the problem. So there's just a lot of debate and discussion about how was alcohol introduced? What Mm. was the role modeling? There's social learning right on the frontiers, especially by people, you know, railroad workers and trappers and traders. These are not people known for their temperance, <laughs> and so alcohol gets introduced, and people learn how to use it in particular ways um, that then become pathologized in the eyes of the you know mainstream society. And um, then again, you have this sort of self-fulfilling knowledge production uh, process where you got arrest rates and ER records and so forth being used to make this claim over and over that alcohol is a severe problem among Native peoples and To me, it's really just, um, you know, uh, alcohol is a severe problem for some Native people. It's a severe problem for some non-Native people, too. And you benefit the people who have these problems best by attending closely to exactly who they are Hmm. uh, and not globally generalizing about the groups that they may be members of.
0: Sure. Um, Sort of along those lines, the final final part of your book talks about the challenges and possibilities of uh, culturally appropriate alcohol services. I'm wondering uh, what this might look like, and Indigenous self-determination in healthcare more broadly. What, how might that, how might that look?
1: Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question, and I think there is work in a variety of Indigenous communities worldwide that's showing, you know, just exactly what Indigenous-controlled healthcare can look like. Um, It's very community-based, right? There's consultation with communities about what services they think they need, how they should be provided, and so on. Um, There's sort of that process uh, is very much part and parcel of how services are developed and delivered um, as opposed to just sort of here's the healthcare system, right, the sort of standard approach where um, uh, whatever is considered conventional in the mainstream society is just sort of brought in. I think there are examples of uh, things like the Navajo Nation, right, which has a very um collaborative uh, uh, relationship with uh, the federally funded uh, health care system and has been able to integrate traditional healing practices into that, you know, so you can go into you know um, the hospital sort of setting or the health center setting and receive standard biomedical care and also you know traditional healing. Um, to sort of deal with the different dimensions of a problem. So you've got tuberculosis, you need an antibiotic for that, but you also need a ritual to sort of deal with uh, how did your body um, become susceptible to the tuberculosis um, bacteria that it encountered, right? So you can deal with different dimensions. Um, uh, At Northern Cheyenne, I think the story is more typical perhaps um, it doesn't get as much kind of uh, attention as communities that are interested in this kind of approach and yet are uh, encountering a lot of barriers um, to doing so. Um, it just takes a very specific set of resources, strategies, uh, leadership, and so on to be able to counter this overwhelming, as I see it, sort of pressure from funding agencies, especially federal funding. The regulatory agencies that oversee healthcare services, right? You have to be able to speak in a certain language to justify and document what you're doing. And the easiest thing you could do is uh, come up with a cultural program that fits your community. So you could hang out your shingle and say, here's the Cheyenne culture, right, mm-hmm. approach to sobriety. And again, what my findings continually showed is that there is no clear consensus about what that means. What is Cheyenne culture? And I think imposing that idea that there should be some coherence is, to me, an artifact and a legacy of colonial encounters. Um, it sort of says if you change from traditional ways or whatever, that somehow you're less Native, right? Right. And uh, to me, the diversity and complexity of the community is part and parcel of the lived reality of, of being Indigenous uh, uh, in the contemporary world. And, um health service systems are not currently set up to acknowledge or uh, work with such complexities. Um, So what I see as the need is for a multidimensional kind of, you know, different kinds of therapeutic resources being available uh, and people being helped with finding what works best for them. And this is just not a mentality that's seen as efficient, right, or Mm. kind of, you know, feasible in our current sort of service systems. But I think it's really would benefit a lot of populations, not just Native populations, to think more along these lines. Uh, but the very pressing need, you know, um, in Native communities, to me, is uh, is abundantly clear. <laughs> there are higher rates of health problems, and there's uh, an extra layer of sort of, but don't you have a coherent local culture, right? That message kind of embedded in the way in which health um, healthcare politics uh, play out. So... Um, there's been some attention to other communities that have managed to kind of take local control. Uh, Navajo is one that I think, uh, has gotten some attention. Um, there's, uh, groups in Canada. Uh, one of my, uh, close research colleagues is Joe gone. who's at the university of Michigan. He's a psychologist and also a uh, member of the Grovant, um, uh, tribe in Montana. Mm-hmm. And he's done work uh, with, um, Aboriginal, uh, I'm sorry, First Nations communities in um, Canada, and uh, looked at a very eclectic, interesting healing center, which has this kind of coherent idea or uh, image of a medicine wheel, but within that has all kinds of things. There's 12-step things, there's sort of Eastern medicine things, right? There's just Mm -hmm. like a lot of things that can get uh, incorporated into that sort of symbolic, right, umbrella. And the umbrella itself has local cultural appeal to uh, Native groups uh, on the reserve where he was working, um, and yet it still has a lot of flexibility. So uh, that's an example. But you know, how do you get funding for that? How do you explain that in a persuasive way, you know, to funding agencies? How do you document that a therapeutic intervention works? And in healthcare in general, this is really difficult. And in mental healthcare, wow, it's really difficult to kind of gather data showing that your intervention worked because of the complexities of transforming somebody's behavior and sort of Psychological uh, world, you know, there's not this nice clear, we're going to do this for a year and measure the outcome. <laughs> it doesn't really lend itself to the uh, data gathering and reporting um, practices that are emphasized in our current sort of healthcare system.
0: Has your colleague uh, in Canada been able to? Um or at Michigan, rather, but has his work in Canada been able to receive yes. any funding, or articulate its goals in a way that is coherent, that is comprehensible by the very limited frameworks that these, you know, NGOs, nonprofits, and the government operate with in their funding decisions? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so, and I think this raises the sort of international comparison issue, where in Canada there's been just a different um, uh, sort of popular consciousness, I guess, of, uh, indigenous experiences. Um, you know, it was, there's an apology, uh, on behalf of the federal government to, uh, First Nations for, you know, um, uh, for example, the residential boarding schools, right. And the impact Mm -hmm. that had on generations of, uh, Uh, First Nations children, and there was actual funding put behind that, that, you know, survivors of this are entitled to funding to help them with the various problems that uh, this whole experience um, uh, left them with. And, you know, in the U.S., we don't have that. We don't have a formal federal apology. Um, We have, you know, a lot of debate. You know, if there's going to be an apology, there's certainly not going to be any financial resources accompanying it. You know the climates I think of awareness of um, indigenous peoples uh contemporary experiences and the sort of political motivation to address those are incredibly different and actually my my current work does uh look at uh, international comparisons um uh, in the ways in which um, health research has been taken over by indigenous peoples, and uh the scenario in the u s is very different than the scenario in a place, for example, like New Zealand, where Uh, Maori activism has led to uh, Maori-controlled health research centers that operate quite differently than what you see uh, in terms of, for example, tribally-run epidemiology centers or other sorts of things uh, that have emerged in the United States.
0: Hmm. By way of conclusion, I want to ask you um, about the the different potential audiences that you have for this book um, and what you hope they take out of it. I mean, it it occurred to me when reading it that this is a book um, that – can and will be read uh, by anthropologists, um, but also I would imagine uh, healthcare workers or mm-hmm. people just generally interested in uh, reforming healthcare practices. So, are there different messages you hope to convey to each of those audiences? And what might those takeaway points be for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, this is the problem with working for over a decade on the same project, is <laughs> your own thinking evolves, right? And before you know it, you've got these sort of multiple messages going. Um, I think my message for anthropology is the sort of, uh, interesting ways in which you can integrate attention to subjective experiences and sort of psychological realities with contemporary, uh, sort of theoretical interest in the diversity and complexity of cultural experience. Right. So, uh, you know, that these two things are profoundly linked together and, um, Uh, There's some tendency in contemporary anthropology to look at people as kind of political actors, you know, only, and that that's really their main motivation is whatever they take to be their political arena uh, within their local community, for example. And my point is to say, no, there's still a pretty deep layer of psychological texture there, people's childhood experiences, you know, and things like that, uh, their interpretations, their contemporary experiences uh, in their localized family world, for example, do play a profound role in motivating their behavior and actions as well. So that's kind of you know there's a long history of anthropology to to talk about there and sort of psychological themes and how they've been looked at or not in different eras of American anthropology. Um, but I think for uh, people interested more in healthcare services, just the now pretty well you know articulated anthropological view uh, that culture to cultural communities are complex that debate. And discussion, right, are part and parcel of life in cultural communities. Um, that that idea is well accepted in anthropology now, but it's still, you know, not that well known outside of anthropology. People still will say, well, what's Cheyenne culture? You know, like you can just describe it as the singular thing. Um, and so I think getting that message across to people who work in healthcare and and or develop policy, right, for how healthcare is funded or regulated or whatever is kind of what I'm aiming for here.
0: Hmm. Well, I've been speaking with um, Dr. Erica Pressing, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and Behavioral Health at the University of Iowa, about her new book, White Man's Water, The Politics of Sobriety in a Native American Community. It's just out from the University of Arizona Press. Uh, Now, I usually ask, uh, as my last question, uh, what you're working on now or what you hope to be working on. You've mentioned a little bit um, in yeah. the previous question about that. And is, is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, about what you, you hope your next project will be or what it is you're currently working on?
1: Yeah, well, my next project just really builds on where this book ends, you know, which is uh, sort of saying what's really at hand here is a politics of knowledge, right? And who controls the production of knowledge about health has a lot to say uh, or a lot to sort of... Um, a lot of influence over what will end up being done about health problems and so I've been increasingly interested in indigenous controlled health research and started reading about this and teaching about this. I teach a health of indigenous peoples class here uh, at Iowa and um, realized that uh, Maori experiences in New Zealand are kind of a um, uh, interesting uh, case in point. There's still lots of health disparities there but the sort of indigenous controlled health research has taken on a very powerful life and has influenced in some ways the ways in which the nation state is gathering uh, its sort you know, health statistics. Uh, we're not seeing that in the U.S. Uh, so far, even though there's been a movement towards more indigenous controlled health research uh, underway uh, for quite some time and especially visible since the 1990s. So this is kind of a historical and also ethnographic project that seems to be where, what I like to do—is that combination, um, you know, looking at these sorts of issues. So.
0: Well, I'm I'm very excited about that that next project. But in the meantime, uh, our listeners should uh, pick up a copy of White Man's Water: The Politics of Sobriety in a Native American Community uh, by my guest Erica Pressing, out from the University of Arizona Press. Dr. Pressing, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Andrew. It's been great.
0: Thanks. You've been listening to an interview with Erica Pressing, author of White Man's Water, The Politics of Sobriety in a Native American Community from the University of Arizona Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all our previous podcasts. And you should track us down on Facebook, where you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.